live on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is Pull Request, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. Pull Request is an hour-long talk show about everything in and relating to technology. Starring two Brooklyn technophiles, Eric Newman and Chris Grabowski. This week's episode, oh, hello. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Newman, and welcome to Pull Request, right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. My co-host, Chris Grabowski, is currently indisposed. And uh, he's currently awaiting uh, getting here on a, one of the beautiful New York City trains. Hello, everybody. So uh, kind of a rocky start here on the first, very first episode of Pull Request. Joining me in the studio is Rob, one of the uh, wonderful, one of the wonderful co-hosts here. Oh, sorry, one of the wonderful uh, owners. Or what, what is it? You run Radio Free Brooklyn, Rob? Co-founder. Co-founder. I, I think you want to bring up Mike, too. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. There we go. You're on uh, Mike. Sorry. Of, actually, yeah. Uh, me, uh, Tom Tenney and I uh, started the station based on long conversations on what, what should we do with our lives. <laughs> how, how long has Radio Free Brooklyn uh, been running? We ran our first program on November 13th, 2015. It was a live event at the Lucky 13 Saloon, and we've been going 24-7 ever since. So, a whole year? A year and a half now. A year and a half. November 2015? No. May. May. I'm sorry, did I say November? I think you I'm, did. I'm, I'm sorry. I misspoke. I bit May 13th. Um, yeah, so a year and a half. May 13th, 2015. Wow. And you, uh, so it was just a live show, and then how, how long did it take? I'm just really curious. Well, we, we, so we, what we did was we did a launch party at the saloon called the Lucky 13 Saloon in Gowanus. Oh. Uh, it's a wonderful spot if, uh, if you want to, like a cool kind of biker bar with stripper poles and, and cute, it's right by girls. The... And, and yeah, they have a back room and uh, a stage, and so we, we brought a, a variety show in and radio broadcast it on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, and that was our first thing. It was our launch party. Wow. And so how long after then, before your, uh, after the first show, did you uh, get this whole studio or start oh, to no, build the, a studio? The studio was already r good to go. It's just that our first broadcast was a remote. But we, the very next day, we were in the studio. Oh, okay. And what was the, uh, what was the genesis of the studio, if you don't mind? Okay, upstairs used to be a bike shop. Right, and now it's a record store. And now it's a record store. Which so I should mention, for those of you who haven't listened before, Radio Free Brooklyn is the most... I'd say this is the most Bushwick spot of... This is as Brooklyn, as Bushwick as you can get. We're in the basement of a record store on DeKalb Avenue, which is right next to the L train and the M train, and right in the heart of Brooklyn in right, Bushwick. Right, right, yeah. L train to DeKalb, 10-minute walk from there. Or, or, or the, the M to M Central. and uh, Two-minute walk from yeah. there. 
Um, How did? Yeah. So there was a bike shop and the owner of said bike shop was a friend of ours. And we had the idea for the radio station before we had the idea to put it in the basement of the bike shop. And then Tom actually thought, hey, we know KT. Why don't we ask her? Because she had this room down here. And um, so, yeah, and she was she was good for it. And um, and then this past summer, she decided to go out of business. Oh, and now there's a record store. So we took over the lease. Turns out Tom is a realtor in the meantime, real real estate agent, and he knows the landlord because the landlord for the record uh, for the uh, bike shop was, was also his personal landlord. And he is also Tom is also like, uh, you know, representing his real estate. So, you know, I basically then uh, because I have a, a, a limited partnership um, LTD business already in place uh, through that, I took over the lease. Our uh, our LTDs. A, th- a thing in the U.S. A limited, yeah. Limited. Yeah. That's not. That's different from an LLC. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. know. So I always wanted to have an. I like that, like the LTD at the end. Yeah, I, it's a Surf Reality Limited. It was like the uh, parent company of my my theater uh, production and and my theater space company. Well, I still have, the the company still exists. So do you still do you still do that type of stuff? Theater production and and theater. Yeah, I do live events, um, especially for Radio Free Brooklyn. I've been executive producing uh, our our live events, uh, like our fundraisers and, and parties and things like that. Actually, we've got one coming up. We're looking at December 10th, Saturday night. Ooh, that's fun. What's Just down the street at GGA Nick's. We're gonna. Uh, we're hoping. We're we're almost there. I'm, I'm already. I'm already. I'm already advertising, and it isn't actually finalized. But we're like ninety percent there. Um, uh, out of system transfer, a tremendous hobo band will be performing. Oh, I actually thought you were talking about a subway. Thing. No, they're called out of system transfer. They're, they're these uh, Brooklyn anarchists. They're, they're, they play kind of what you might call hobo or tramp music. Sure, sure. So um, I should mention that uh, one of the reasons why you're here isn't just because you wanted to watch me. Well, it is because all of the, uh, as a new show on Radio Free Brooklyn, all of the first episodes of the shows uh, are having. Um, the hosts are shadowed by veterans of the studio and the station, and uh, you are the veteran that I get to uh, fight the radio <laughs> war with today. So first, many thanks. And also, Rob, since sure. you are one of the senior staff of the station, many thanks for the opportunity, of course, to uh, play cheesy sound effects and talk about computers on the Internet. It's uh, on the Internet radio. It's really a fantastic opportunity. And Christian and I, he couldn't be here right now uh, because of the... Subways, but uh, we really thank you and really appreciate it. Well, uh, um, thanks for bringing the show on, and we're, we're very happy to have you. And you know, I'm looking forward to the cheesy sound effects. Sure, well, we've got plenty of them. <laughs> <laughs> they're right there. <laughs> of course, making sure they're mixed properly is is another the second right. battle. But but, uh, but honestly, you know, you get the the person you should be thanking is Tom because it's really his hard work and sweat equity and, and ingenuity and bootstrapping and bootstrapping I mean basically he built this thing up from nothing and you can get the book to find out how he did it because he wrote the DIY internet cookbook how to do your own internet radio station you can get that on Amazon and it's well worth reading if you want to do something like this he, he so he blazed a trail and then shows everybody else how they too can follow said trail wow that's really fantastic and uh a nice shopping spree at a at a sweetwater or a guitar center will definitely allow you to get a lot of this stuff it's uh, it's quite surprising though how accessible a lot of this gear is in this day and age you don't need racks and racks and racks of stuff and a lot of uh Heavy lifting can be done with software. Right. And um, But if you don't want to spend a lot of money on software, I recommend you read his book because 
there's a, there's the there's an in, inexpensive way which is elaborate and involves a lot of bootstrapping, and then there's also an expensive way. But we didn't have a lot of money, so sure. basically basically we had to rely on Tom's talent and. Um, dedication to hard work very uh, very grassroots operation that we've got going here absolutely this is grassroots homemade artisanal artisanal small batch homegrown farm to table locally sourced exactly organic gmo free gluten-free radio yep do it yourself do it yourself well with a little help from my friend sorry that was incredibly cheesy um <clears throat> so tom oh sorry rob again we were talking about tom so much i really apologize rob do you use computers I, I have a laptop at you, home. You have a laptop. I, I actually have two laptops at two home. Laptops. Um, they're both Macs. Um, Were they Macs of uh, of the current era, or do you happen to have a vintage or uh, an older Macintosh? They're both Mac Pros. One of them is five years old, and one of them is three years old. Okay, so you have a MacBook Pro. MacBook Pro, right? Right. MacBook Pro from 2011, which was unfortunately a really horrible year for Apple. But uh, unbelievably, believe, believe it or not, that particular MacBook Pro is been performing tremendously well for me really and my my newer one is a piece of shit is it the well we, we're gonna have a segment when uh, chris were here we're gonna we would have a segment called apple sucks now where we talk about that um because i i am a diehard really diehard apple fanboy or i was uh before steve died and uh, i know that's a cliche statement but it's really it's really true and the direction that apple has taken is they've really the the emperor has no clothes now they're just kind of Sailing a ship without a captain. Yeah, I'm appalled at the at the iPhone Seven, the the the, the no jack uh, thing is. Um, it's I, courage, Rob. You have to have the courage no. to make life more <laughs> less convenient. The what I'm what I'm going to do is actually migrate over to another platform when, oh, my, when no. this when this iPhone Six goes, because I have no desire to be picking up ear uh, ear. Ear, uh, what are ear, earbuds, earpods. earpods out of my dog shit, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or if you shake your if you shake your head, no, they'll just go yeah, flying out exactly. in different directions. You'll never see them again. <laughs> no, and I uh, people always say like, oh yeah, it's an edge case. Why don't? Why do you still? Why? Why do you still need to have your headphones plugged in? It's 2016. Well, if you like the quality of music, or let's say you want to bend over and pick something up, <laughs> Bluetooth reception is not that great, even in this day and age. Recently. I picked up a new pair of Bluetooth headphones, and I was at, le at least a little impressed, uh, not impressed, sorry, a little affirmed with the progression of technology, but even still, the, the, the range and the fidelity, the fidelity is okay, and it definitely has improved, I'll give it that, but the range is not where it should be, and if you want to go on a brisk run, or if you want to go on something, there's no way that you could have kind of small, compact headphones that actually sound good wireless. Right. And Apple tried. They have their $100 million testing lab, and they have, you know, their knight of design, Johnny Ive, uh, who I believe his knighthood should be taken away, but as an American, I don't have that authority. Um, I, uh, they have him really steering the ship, but the thing is, and this is the thing that Apple lost, and if uh, Christian ever makes it, I'll just, I'll, I'll, if he does make it, I'll say it again, but the thing that Apple lost is they don't have anybody throwing temper tantrums. Uh. Steve Jobs... Whether, no matter what you say about him, no matter how much of this stuff that he said that he invented or that he takes credit for that are actually the work of other engineers, and the fact that he's known as a giant asshole in real life, he threw enough temper tantrums to change the course of human technology. And uh, I'll give you an example. When they were making the first iPhone, um, one of the engineers comes into Steve Jobs' office with a prototype. And they say, what do you think, Steve? And he goes, um, it's too thick. And they go, well, we tried as hard as we could, 
and uh, we're doing the best job that we can. That's it. You could not make it. We can't make it any thinner. Just you can't be done. So he takes the prototype, and in his office is an aquarium, and he throws the prototype iPhone into the aquarium, and air bubbles come out, and he says, "See, air bubbles. You can make it thinner." That's <laughs> Steve Jobs. <laughs> Nobody does that at Apple anymore. Right. Here's another one. When Mobile Me in 2000, I think it came out in 2005 and it died in 2011 or, two, or sometime last decade. Uh, and it didn't work. It was a massive failure. And uh, Steve Jobs called everybody on the team into the, um, I forgot that room on the Apple campus where they do the smaller keynote events. It's a kind of a theater arena thing that we've seen on YouTube videos before. Um, he called them all in, and he just started cursing at them. Why the f*** doesn't this work proper? Why can't I do this? And he fired all of them. He yelled at all wow. of them, fired all of them, started from scratch, and now they have iCloud. And iCloud kind of works, but nobody, nobody's throwing a temper tantrum anymore at Apple. Uh, and you can tell that by the, the state of their, the new MacBook Pros and the new technology and the fact that they spent three years, three years, Rob, to develop a laptop that has only minor improvements. And they have the gall, the arrogance, the hubris, the, it just, it's, it's just, it really is just arrogance to say, oh, we don't, you know, they're just uh, creative people. We don't expect them to deliver every year. So if they need to take longer to develop a feature, we let them have that liberty. Well, guess what? The rest of us still have shit to do. And the rest of us still have stuff to make. And the rest of us still have stuff to produce. And we can't do that on a computer with four fucking ports. Hey, Christian. Hi. How's it going? Can you uh, speak into the mic there? Yeah, can you hear me? No. Say, talk. Keep talking. Hello? Oh, there you go. I think you're on mic four. So keep, I need you to All right. keep, say like a whole sentence, please. Why does the MTA suck? Why does the MTA suck? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Talk, please. We're on the radio. Let's go. Why, do, why does the MTA suck, Christian? It sucks because it broke down today. And, of course, there is no notification of this, so that's always nice. What, it just uh, So you're on the train, yeah. and it stops. Yep. You're on the Lex line. Yes. Interesting fact about the Lex line. You know this. What is it? It's the most crowded line in the world. No. <laughs> The, well, kind of. It, not exactly, but kind of. The Le Lexington Avenue line, the 4, 5, and 6, the green trains that aren't the G, uh, is the most crowded subway line in the country. The Lexington Avenue line has more riders than all of D.C. plus all of Chicago. Mm -hmm. You have two cities' rapid transit environments combined into one line on the New York City subway system, and it is grotesque. It is gross. It is deplorable. It is abhorrent. <laughs> It is terrible. So my question is, how have we not automated this yet? You look at other unions. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's your answer. Yeah, yeah. That means two things. Oops. <laughs> I'm sorry. I meant this one. Who else but Quagmire? I uh yes, I uh um yeah. So the Lex, so you, so the Lex line, you're on that. That broke down mm -hmm. right at Times Square. Uh, yeah, Grand, or Grand Central. Central. Were you like pulling into the station, like I've got to make it, I've got to make yep. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, how long were you, were you close enough in in the station where like you could see the tiling? Yeah. And like, if I could just get out of this train, I could do, I could get that, I could do it, yep. and I could, I could close the gap. And uh, and and you were just that's really infuriating. I could probably have saved time walking. 
Really? Yeah. Yeah. Walking here from Grand Central. Yeah. That would have only taken an hour and a half. Yeah. We're only on the air for another 45 minutes, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thanks, uh... Anyway, listen, it's really nice for you to be here. I said you'd be about 20 minutes late. It's 1.17, so it's pretty good. It's okay. I was almost late. Um, uh, so, Christian, I don't exactly know how to get back into this kind of uh, rhythm that we, we had going uh, yesterday you know, in our heads mm -hmm. before we got on the air. Um, why don't we start off like this? Why don't we give a little bit of an introduction of right. ourselves? So who are you? I'm Christian Grabowski. Hi, Christian. I am a uh, software engineer. I've been coding for about uh, 12 years at this point. And uh, these days I do a lot of work on the infrastructure side, so operating systems, uh, cloud orchestration, schedulers, containers. Schedulers, containers. Like Tupperware? <laughs> No, like uh, I have this uh, uh, program I want to run, and I want to run it isolated from the rest of the operating system. Gotcha. So, like, is a container is how is a container different from something like a sandbox? It's actually very similar. If anything, a uh, container is a su subset of what a sandbox is. Like a, a sandbox is, you can achieve a sandbox from a container, along with a bunch of other tools. But a container itself is just a, a namespaced-out pro process that also has the ability to allot different resources. Can a container get into another container? Yes, but uh, the idea is it shouldn't. Uh, it's possible, though. Is it possible through like an, an exploitive way, kind of like uh, viruses can get out of a VM space and affect the host computer? I wouldn't even call it exploitive. It's just if you run as root, you're root. So you can kind of do whatever you want. Oh, well, why, why run as root? Well, you shouldn't. Right, but who does? Uh, anyone who just does the default, because you do need to be privileged to create a container, but you can also specify a user, but that's an additional thing you have to control. So you have to be root to create a container, even if the program is running in user space? Yes. Why? That seems ridiculous. Well, because a container is basically two things that exist only in a uh, Linux kernel. Uh, so it's namespaces and C groups, and these things are a uh, lot lo lo Linux level. or Unix? Like, could, would Mac OS be Linux. able to... Well, Mac OS has its own... Sandboxing. Thing. Yeah, sandbox. And Windows which... has sandboxing. And Windows has containers, oddly enough. And Windows has integrated virtual machines. In fact, Microsoft also joined the Linux Foundation. Talk about things turning upside down. Microsoft is actually on the right the track. Apocalypse, but... <laughs> Given everything else that's going on in the world, <laughs> probably. By the way, let's take this moment to mention we won't be talking about politics on this show. I really want my goal for pull requests, I think our goal for pull requests, is to make it a reprieve from all of the other hours and hours and hours and hours of horrible news coverage and shit that goes on in the rest of the world. Let's just take a break and talk about computers for a little bit. We don't want to have a double message. We don't want to have kind of this ulterior motive of propaganda. We don't want to talk about any types of groups of people except for people who don't know how to use computers or maybe Windows users. But that's it. Um... That's the only kind of lines that we draw on the sand. We don't really, you know. Um, I had this bit about how the iPhone 7 was exactly like Hillary Clinton. But because uh, she didn't win the election, I can't use it. How horrible is that? I had, like, this whole routine. You know how hard it is to come up with a, with a comedy bit that's actually fun? I don't do stand-up. But, you know, a comedy bit that's actually funny that my friends don't groan at, like, the majority of what I say? <laughs> And I actually come up with a, you know, Hillary Clinton is just like the iPhone 7. And then it gets a kick, but then she doesn't win, so I can't use it. Which was, uh, 
that because they took all, I, I don't, I, I don't want it. I don't want the new iPhone seven. It doesn't, it, it's not that much better than what we currently have. And they've taken things away that I did like, and I, I would be, I'm going to eventually be forced to use it. And it's just going to be crammed down my throat and I'm going to accept it just like Hillary Clinton, except for the fact that she didn't win. So it's not a good analogy, but I still wanted to at least burn that metaphor on the first show while we can. Or you could get a Google phone and just be always happy. Anybody, anybody but an Android. I can't. See, I can't. I just can't. I can't I, bring I've myself. I've always been Android. I have no complaints. I can't. Yeah, you. Yeah, you're probably a Trump supporter. Oh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That means two things. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay. So you may you're you're a software engineer. I'm also a software engineer. Do you know that? I did not. That comes you didn't surprise. know. No. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's a very overarching kind of occupation because both of us do very different things, and I really don't care to do what you do, and you really. Think you care about what I do, but you don't. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. Because whenever we get into these arguments, and we do, uh, which is why we have this radio show together, whenever we get into these arguments, you always make some kind of reductionist uh, line about front-end stuff. I typically prefer aesthetics and front-end, though I have a I've, quick introduction on myself before it was a quick tangent. By the way, on quicktangent.com. Uh, my name is Eric Newman. I've been making websites this whole century. I have a company that makes websites and other forms of media called Pneumonium. My last name is Newman, and if I discovered an element, it would be called Pneumonium. And then I spelt it phonetically because my last name can be spelled about five different ways, but yet nobody still spe spells that the right way. So I've done my best. Anyway, um, I do what's called full-spectrum web design. I hate the term full-stack. Full-stack sounds like it should come with some syrups and bacon. Well, I like the word all-stack because there's... Full stack. All stack, like all and, genders? No. I mean, I mean as in the fact that there is more to the stack than just an API layer and a website. And for some reason, that's... Well, the website has many layers in it. Yes. And what is a website? And, you know, it's, it's interesting because well, we're... it's not necessarily... Well, no, 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 no. Because we're in this, we're in this uh, transition time in media as we transition from the 20th century paradigm. I'm popping too much. I'm sorry. The 20th century media paradigms, the 21st century media paradigms. We have some interesting questions like... What is television? What is a website? If I watch a show that premiered on Netflix on my phone on the toilet, is that television? But what if it's the new season of Arrested Development? Because it was on a real television, is it? but I'm now watching it while taking a shit. Is it still? So I think the way to look at it is it's not television, but it is video. It's video. Yeah. So do we remove... So the medium isn't television, it's video. But film and television both are technically video, but they're mm -hmm. completely different media. Now, I'm sure there's somebody who's studied film who can argue that there's a difference between film and video. There's a, li a literal but... difference between film and videotape. Yes, yes there's li there is a literal difference. And that requires... Or, or I should say physical difference. It's probably, I guess, the same as, as different types of canvas and different types of paint and stuff mm -hmm. to use. Um, and then what is a website? Because most websites, especially with the world of modern JavaScript frameworks and microservices well, and everything are basically apps and apps and websites are, right. can almost be conflated these days. Well, there's also people will separate website and web app as two separate things. As... I don't know why. I, unless they're trying to think, well, you know, it's like a website that doesn't refresh. Okay. But that well, stopped happening 10 years argument. ago. In fact, I, I remember having this argument with you about a year ago. And uh, I think the argument ended up being that a web app is that a very highly interactive thing, while a website is something you go to to uh, kind of just gain from, browse. in a sense. Bra yeah, browse. If you have an app that looks at Wikipedia, mm -hmm. or you browse Wikipedia, it's still an app. Not necessarily. It's called Wikipanion is the one that I use. That's literally an app. 
And that's it, a front end for Wikipedia via the API. How is it different from Wikipedia.org? Um, that's a good question, actually. So I, I may have evolved on the situation. I may have evolved on this argument, is what I'm saying. Ah. Yeah, so let's correct the record. <laughs> um, no, but it's, it's interesting, especially because, if you remember, the original iPhone had no apps. Mm -hmm. Steve famously said, why? Just use the Internet. And it was a fantastic thought, except that after they launched the App Store a year later, 90% of the reason why people wanted an app is so they can have an icon on the home screen. Mm -hmm. They don't want to have to go to Safari and hit bookmarks. They want to see the grid of icons or on your Android, the whatever Windows desktop of icons. Um, and, uh, and then just pick it from there rather than, I don't know. It's like they could literally, I've had this argument over many years with many people. And uh, so, the, the, app, the, the, the thing, app or website, could be literally identical, except for the wrapper around it, which is either the web browser or a native application, which may just include a web browser anyway. Mm -hmm. So what is an app? What is a website? I don't know. I think th this is one of those things that will probably sort themselves out in 10 years as language and, and technology continues to change. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the Internet... Or I should rather say, how long do you think before the Internet as we know it is indistinguishable from the, whatever the contemporary Internet is? I, I don't follow. I am thoroughly convinced that in the future, you're not going to have a location bar where you could just type in an address. Everything is going to be kind of app-based. It'll still use back-end services to communicate, but you won't have the ability to go to any site. You'll have to get a branded app through a branded content provider. This is that net neutrality argument. And I can't well, see the democracy of the internet staying. So, it's already, sorry, hold on. It's, let me just finish this and you could tell me that I'm stupid. Um, <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. That's why we have the show. I uh, no, I don't, I really, I want it to. I don't want, I don't mm -hmm. want to conflate that I, I don't, I, the internet was meant to be democratic. It was meant to democratize information. It was meant to give everybody Everybody a voice. It, mean, it means, when, you, when I say everybody, that means people that you don't agree with. It means people that have opposite views of, of you, or people that have views that may be not ethically sound. They still get to have a voice on the internet. And just as you get to have a voice, everybody gets the same. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of democracy and that kind of equality that's honestly being thrown and taken away or kind of distorted by the media of only certain people, only evil people like a certain news outlet or only good people like another news outlet. Like that doesn't like that mentality doesn't exist also on television. So mm -hmm. well and then you see Facebook, how Facebook I would say is the new AOL. So what I was gonna say with, okay, sorry. was uh uh kind of in regards to that democracy you're already disappearing, the location bar is already something that only a few users are using these days. You already kind of only surf through Google and Facebook. It's kind of like Google you go to when you need something and you're not sure where it is, and Facebook kind of just presents things to you, and that's most of how people find their, uh, websites these days. Yeah, and Facebook and Google have been competing, not not directly, but kind of, not exactly directly as in used Facebook over Google, but Facebook is trying to eat Google's lunch in the search market by delivering what you want before you search it. Mm -hmm. And then they're also, like AOL, excuse me, getting into the keyword business, where a lot of the pages or a lot of the things that you type into the Facebook bar can just basically be keywords. You can type in, I'm sure you could type in Facebook keyword Nick and go to the Nickelodeon Facebook page. 
but is it the same as AOL keyword Nick from the 90s? I don't know. <laughs> probably not, because this page probably uses CSS. But, uh, by the way, you know why uh, Nickelodeon had a special site on AOL? Is because web browsers at the time couldn't support frames, but AOL could. Really? That's, that was my view of it, at least, because when I tried to visit the same website on not AOL, it was this web browser, which was Internet Explorer 1.0, uh, with the, it had the windows and Wait, the clouds. Wait, didn't work on IE? Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> yes, exactly, Christian. That, that, yeah, I'm, you know what? I, uh... <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. Uh, you're right. That's a very valid point. Well, something didn't work in IE, big surprise. Well, that problem's been around for 25 years, so, yes. uh, it should really go and get a job by now. Anyway, uh, almost 1.30. Ah, I should bring the mic with me when I say that. It's almost 1.30, which means we're halfway done. We have a, another person in the studio if he wants to say hi. Does he want to say hi? Oh, hey, everybody. Um, yeah. Uh, Hello. Uh, hey. Uh, so I'm a doctor of the occult arts. Uh, hi. <coughs> so I don't use a lot of computers but I did want to stop by and say hello. Well, hello. Cooper, you uh, also host a show on this beautiful network, Radio Free Brooklyn. I sure do. It's on today at 4 p.m. It's on today? Yeah. At 4 p.m.? Yeah. Can I stick around? No pressure, because we're on the air right now, so you have to say yes, but it's fine. Uh, yeah, if you want. Oh, why, thank you. I was so unexpected. Um, admittedly, the, there is an interview already scheduled, so you don't... Not going to talk, right? I mean, well, that's, I mean, it's pre-recorded, so like, you wouldn't even be able to, the mics would be off for that part. But, um, yeah. Well, first, I want to explain, you're here because I tried to get you to run over while we were waiting for Christian. Yeah. But, hey, it's okay. Sorry. We're all, we all got here. Sorry, I'm late. No, I you're not, really, no, this was a last minute thing, I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, you're welcome to stop by anytime and, and talk about computers with us. Okay, cool. Um, can, I, can I ask a question? You actually, can, uh, as long as it's not tech support. No, We no, don't do tech it's, support it's, it's on the not. show. Um, so, I understand that, like, and this is going to sound really dumb, because I don't know how computers work, really. But um, when you use an operating language, like, let's say, CSS or C++, I might be making this up. I'm not good at this game. Um, but you use something like that. Operating language? Operating. Coding language? Coding language. You know, Taking like, a hole. When yeah. you use a language, when you use, when you code in something. When you code in something. Thank you. No problem. Um... How does that manifest into actual computer activity? Like, how, how does the computer learn that language, so to speak? Or am I just completely fundamentally not understanding any of this? No, 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 no. That's a very, that's a very valid question. So your question, just to repeat it, is um, when, how, do you, how is it that when you type code in text that the computer actually knows what to do? Precisely. Christian? So this is very language-dependent. Uh, certain languages, it uses what's called the compiler, which will take that text and then actually r uh, run a separate program on it that will uh, convert it into the ones and zeros that a computer actually understands. But then there's, there's an intermediate step, though, that you're forgetting, isn't there? Well, it's, again, it depends on the language. Okay. Like uh, one of my favorite languages, Go, what it does is it's actually just dealing with the text transform all the way up until it hits assembly, which is a, a lower level language that is still human readable if you're from the 70s, basically. But Otherwise, it's uh, still pretty hard to understand what's going on in there. And then what it actually does is run that through an assembler, which turns that into the ones and zeros. 
and certain other languages will actually just go straight to uh, the ones and zeros from text as it runs. Which, what about machine code? Well, machine code it, uh, technically are, are well. Okay, so it's machine code and bytecode. It's uh, generally considered uh, very similar, and again, uh, a language dependent. And basically, what machine code is is just your assembly code turned into a actual more uh, the actual instructions that the that yeah. the processor uses yeah, in so, so assembly code text is code. text. Yeah, so assembly co code is text, and machine code is the actual uh, mathematical, like you said, hex representation of those instructions. And historically, Steve Wozniak memorized the hex code, the opcodes for the Motorola 68K. Was it? What was the first pro 6502 that they used in the Apple II? And he meant they that's how they wrote basic. The first Apple basic was he 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 manually typed in the machine codes into the pro into the computer. Why? Because they didn't have anything else. So you keep you keep throwing you like you use a program to make a program. Well, how did you make that program with another pro the chicken and the egg thing? So oh, absolutely. So he made Apple Basic, which was the first pro the first. Uh, SDK for them, the software developer mm -hmm. kit, which is what you would use, Cooper, if you uh, were alive in 1978 and had an Apple II and wanted to make a program. If um, if I learned the ones and zeros, could I actually just use no. the ones and zeros? No. no. You'll never. It's impossible. <laughs> impossible. Because like, if you write out the number 72 in yeah. binary, it's this long. Um, for people at home, uh, Eric just made a very wide gesture with his hand. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's this big. Yeah. Um, okay, but what if I tried real hard and I cared? No, because of the because there's levels, and one of the things that Christian was mentioning is the levels, like that Seinfeld episode with Kramer and his apartment. Levels, Jerry. Levels, where you'd have the high level programming language like Go, or I like PHP, um, or, uh, or, JavaScript, <coughs> um, or JavaScript, or JavaScript. Um, that gets compiled into and transformed into a lower level language like assembler code, assembly language, assembly assembly code, assembler language, right? Is that it? It's assembly assembly language and assembly code. The assembler is actually what turns that into the okay. machine code. So then it goes so it code. gets translated from the high level language that you know, like English, PHP, JavaScript, to a lower level assembly language, which then gets converted to machine code, which is the actual instructions that the computer uses in hex to process each line, each individual instruction. Now the thing is is that one line of real code might actually turn into a hundred lines of machine code, or if the specific computer and the specific architecture of the motherboard has some of the stuff that you want to do implemented in hardware, then it creates, then there's a specific instruction for that, and that's only one or a couple lines. So it goes from that, which also then there's other optimizations that are applied by the compiler. There's other optimizations that are applied based on what system you're on, what system you're compiling for, the software on the system that you're compiling for, the dependencies and the versions of the dependencies. All of that gets into some assembler code, assembly language code, that gets turned into hex code that then gets turned into binary that the computer reads. Okay. Thank That's you. a whole thing. So yeah. if you wanted to do all of that manually, Turtles be my out. guest. Um, if, I, if I do do all that manually successfully, can I be a guest on the show and talk about my experiences and triumphs? Yes. It has to work. Fair enough. It has to work. I accept your challenge. And so. it has to be documented. You'll probably have a beard that makes you look like Gandalf but by the time you're done with it. That sounds... We're, mean, New York will either I, be underwater. I sides over here. <laughs> so I'm hearing is good stuff. Yeah, either either New York will be underwater or uh, you'll, have a, you'll have a Gandalf beard by the time that you finish that. But best of luck to you. Thank you. Get to studying and let us know how you do.
sure thing. Uh, so Cooper, this, just to plug your show, it's in an, it's in ninety minutes. Uh, is it four? Yeah, it's at four. Yeah. Oh, so an hour and a half. Sorry, yeah. two hours and a half. Yeah, you should check it out. So today, if mind if I like say what? We're yeah, today? yeah. Oh, what yeah. are you talking about today? It's right here so, on Radio Free Brooklyn. Sure is. Um, so I talked to a visiting professor at Yale University about um, Yale about Renaissance theories of how people would have sex with demons and so we had a long chat about that and witchcraft trials and also somebody sent in a question about how u.s law interacts with ghosts and there are ways there have been ways it's very exciting the research how does stuff. u.s law interact with ghosts with, with ghosts <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. i'm sorry i shouldn't i'm, I'm the professional here i should be very sorry <laughs> how does it how, how? Does, sorry, how does u.s law interact with the spirit world the spirit world yes not ghosts no ghosts, totally ghosts. Okay, that's, that's can you say it with that like ghost, or is that the that's the oh. disrespectfulness on your on um, your craft? I, I I believe the correct phrase would be this is how U.S. law interacts with g g g ghosts. <laughs> well, cool. So it's into the dark right here on Radio Free Brooklyn at four p.m. Eastern, which is in, in less than two and a half hours. Check out the scene, guys. Check out the scene. You might learn something. Uh, Christian, mm-hmm. you wanted to say something. Oh, just because. Oh, by the way, wait. One last thing. By the way, we use a lot of hex codes in web design. You might like that. Oh yeah, I think you didn't you. Shut up! You're not supposed to say that. I I said it two months ago. It's a podcast. It's there. No, but no, but no one's gonna listen to this radio show and then cross reference it with your show that they didn't know that I was on. Where I came up with that and I've been saving it for six weeks and now you you blew it. Oh, I'm sorry. It's still a good joke. No, it's not. Not when you repeat it. (laughs) <laughs> it's the uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon with CSS. Exactly, um, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon with CSS. I like that a lot. How do you get to Kevin Bacon with CSS? <laughs> that that wasn't the goal there, but that is. It's the goal now. Yeah. Oh, did I miss that? Did I I missed it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, well, why don't we? Uh... Why don't we take a break? Why don't we take a break here? Sorry, I keep forgetting that the microphone isn't just attached to my head. Um. Okay, and then let's set, and let's do this. San friends, do you live in New York City? Well, if you do, Pneumonium has a beautiful new product for you. It's called Where Am I? Your five-borough compass navigator to help you get anywhere around from 242nd Street to the ass end of Staten Island. Simply go to www.whereami.nyc and enable location services on your mobile device to find the neighborhood, borough, and three closest subway stops to you, wherever you are. No ads, no tracking, only geospatial brilliance. That's Where Am I? Brought to you by Pneumonium. Pneumonium, reinventing media daily. How was that? That's good. Thanks. It was our first commercial. That was yeah. great background music. Where did you get that? Uh, I I've been alive for sixty years. Cool. Yeah. You haven't aged a day. Why? Thank you. Yeah, you don't <laughs> look a day over forty. Oh, that's that's yeah. That's all the stress from coding. <laughs> my 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 neck increases its arch in every uh, in ten degrees every eighteen months. So by this time next year I'll just be staring at my feet, and then uh, for season two or season three I'll just be uh, upside down. And start calling you Lurch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um... There's some, there's some noise. You hear that too, right? Yeah. Maybe the studio is haunted. Maybe it is haunted. That's interesting. Maybe it is haunted. Okay. Um, well, Christian, do you want to talk about... Um, we've got 20 minutes left. Do you want to talk about... 
You want to talk about what? Uh, as because we brought up Yale before the uh, break there earlier, I was uh, reminded of the um, the article that you sent me about the um, uh, mathematically pr- uh, proved secure. OS. Uh, okay. Is that uh, was that Cube OS with a Q? Um, I don't remember the name of it offhand, but it was something. Uh, this one? No. No. Okay. Well, um, what did you want to say? There's an operating system that most operating systems protect people with layers of security just by saying no, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is what? How does that? How does that work? Well, I'd say first off, you kind of have to define secure. What is exactly secure? What that, is secure? And that is hard to do because. It's not like you have an actual checklist because you're always going to be adding to that checklist then because there's always going to be some way to get in. It's kind of just a matter of, the, you know, it's not like something that uh, is eventually hits zero. It's a slope that approaches zero. So things like can one user access another user's document is kind of one of the basic ones. Okay. And then the operating system just says, no, you can't. Depending. So it's a user-based... Uh, there's like some uh, interesting. Uh, there's so it's user based and it's basically just a giant grid of users and uh, can they do something or not, right? Yes and no. Okay, what's the yes and no? It's more of a labeling system of saying uh, this user or these groups, and not really as much a grid as so much as uh, these very unorganized sets. Where actually the unorganization helps there to say that hey, I have this group that I want to let these people do anything I want on here. But then I have another group. I want them to basically just be able to log in, and that's it, just to be able to see what things look like. But that hinges on files. Yes. And those files can be overwritten by programs. Depending on uh, how privileged that program is running. Well, if it uses an exploit, it could be root. Yes. Okay. So you have files that are written by other files that are protected by other files and other programs that may be exploited. Yes. That doesn't sound too secure because you could just break through that. So there's been a lot of uh, different ways of handling this over the years, and uh, particularly lately, um, I actually saw a presentation recently on NixOS, which is an interesting uh, flavor of Linux. Okay. And Is that its own distro, its own everything? Yep. Okay. In fact, its big thing is its package manager, which you uh, it's very declarative and functional in the sense that you're actually writing a program to say wh- what you want to install. And the really cool thing there is actually instead of dealing with, I installed this program and now it's just globally on my machine, it actually installs to the user. So say I want to install, um, uh, uh, well, it's not a graphical uh, operating system by default, but you could, and then say you want to in- install Chrome, of one version. There's not a command line version of Chrome? Uh, not that I know of. Well, that's disappointing. Right? Yeah, especially because it could just use that Tmux stuff from Vim. Eh, you're kind of crossing the beams here. Why? Uh, no, it's just that, that ability to have like different windows of stuff and text. Well, I mean, I guess you could run Chrome directly if you have <coughs> X11 just and then pipe it, but that's kind of like this black magic voodoo stuff at that point. Could, if you had X11 and then just pipe it, so you'd have to run it in a graphical session somewhere else you, and then pipe that out to a, a terminal. Generally, when I hear how to do these things, you lose me at X11, but... Uh, okay. Yeah. I lose... You You get lost at X11, yeah. is what you're saying. Oh. Well, 
well, we, we need to find something as a graphical server. I'm like, all right, I'm good. I'm just going to stick to my black and white. Text. Well, I mean, but that's not that's not crazy. I was actually reading about, I'm not kidding, I was actually reading about uh, Quartz Compositor earlier today. Oh, that's from Mac the, OS. Yeah, Mac OS ten. The uh, OS X uh, X eleven, right? Yeah, basically, yeah. and it came out with uh, ten point two Jaguar, I think. Um, that's that's a graphics server, and it just takes commands. Yeah, and raster. It takes a raster input and a location and a command. It technically and has the, an and the process protocol. that owns it. Yeah, it's exactly what X eleven is. Uh, it's so then, why 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 do you get lost? Because it's all the stuff that you're dealing with. Uh, t uh, you still have like a natural device you have to mount into there, and it's all these things that kind of come together that are. It's an know, actual it's, device. Well, or you, just a socket. You have a yes. You have the socket to X11, but then you have a device to deal with actually outputting the graphics to a monitor for. Uh, oh, the video cards. Yes. Well, that makes sense. Yes, and so these are a lot of things that I'd rather just have kind of out of the box for me. I don't like to mess with graphics because that is a kind of a delicate feature. But I mean, you're, aren't, doesn't X11 just talk to the abstracted device driver for the graphics card? Case in point, when I run my Ubuntu machine, the moment I go to some kind of 3D animation, the whole thing just starts to flicker. That's got to be a driver issue. I, would, I, I was I doing like so. Windows Vista style 3D stuff on Ubuntu 10 years ago. Yeah. On a much well, lower level computer I would, than anything I would say you have. It is, I would say it is uh, dr driver dependent and also hardware dependent. And you don't have the video card driver. Your your uh, Hummer video card doesn't have Ubuntu drivers. <laughs> it's actually two video cards. Right, sorry, your, Pro your Hummer limo video card. Which is probably the issue there. burning a hole. You have to start it with a ripcord. <laughs> burns a hole in the ozone layer. Doesn't have drivers for Ubuntu. What a surprise! It does have drivers for Ubuntu, but they don't work that well. No, the issue is probably the fact that. My Did you write them? Is that why they? They're no. No. Not that they actually, didn't work that well. I mean, just that they're incomplete. Because I wouldn't dare write a, a video card driver. I've written a sound card driver. That wasn't bad, but video drivers is a little more advanced. Did you have a specific instruction on how to get it to fart? <laughs> oh yeah, just send a patch to this bay and it'll. No, in fact, it's actually supported officially by Ubuntu. But the issue there, uh, the actual issue I have is the fact that I have too much power in uh, on the board because my board isn't meant to have two video cards. Like a Tim Allen kind of twenty-year-old sitcom reference. Were you alive in the nineties, Christian? Did you have I a was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Did you watch Home Improvement? Absolutely. Okay, that was that was that reference from I, I, twenty-five I, years ago. How old are you? You're twenty-two. So, that's anyway. Um, <laughs> I should make references for things this century. But if you notice, a lot of the music that I played was, was from 50 years ago. So, yeah, yeah. Anyway, guess what I found? I found the uh, article you were looking for. Computer scientists at Yale University in the U.S. Yale is in the U.S. have developed the world's first super secure computer operating system running on multi-core processors. It aims to keep hackers out and shield against cyber attacks by re-engineering the ways computers are traditionally built. The kernel is the central core of a computer's operating system and has blah, 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 blah. We know that. Cooper. Yes. The kernel is the central core of a computer's operating system and has complete control over everything that occurs in the system. It is usually located into a in a protected area of the computer's memory and helps connect software to applications, software applications to, a hard to the hardware in a computer. Oh, that's the thing. That's I, the thing. I was asking about. All of the programs we talked about, yeah, yeah. like how they work, yeah. they all talk to the kernel. In the operating system, the kernel does the, the stuff. Is it kernel like a piece of corn or kernel like the uh, rank in the army? It's it's spelt like the piece of corn, Ah, but is, it's the rank in the army. Is it a physical object or is it... More like a general than a kernel, really. Mm, I would say it's kind of more just commander-in-chief in a sense. 
Okay. Or, or well, until you get into distributed systems, then all of a sudden it becomes a, like your lieutenant colonel there. Interesting. Okay. Is, is it a physical thing in the it's a, it's a program. Oh, okay. And and uh, the kernel is responsible for all of the hardware interfacing and the main bit of the operating system. And when the kernel just dies on you, it's called a kernel panic. And if you've ever used a Macintosh, the Macintosh equivalent of the blue screen where everything goes gray and it says, I'm sorry, the computer's not working. Please restart it. That's a kernel panic. And that means that the main driver of the computer just died. It just, just crapped out and you have to restart it. Um, but it's all completely software. I'm just going to take a moment and Google and see if Colonel Panic is already a punk band or if I can use that for myself. Maybe we should have called the show Colonel Panic. Oh, that would have been good. That would have been good. Oh, well, oh. it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so the operating system we're talking about is called Certicos, like Certificate OS. Certicos. The Certicos operating system is different in that it supports concurrency, which means that it enables multiple se sequences of programmed instructions known as threads to run simultaneously on multiple core CPUs. How, how is that different yeah, from task I, scheduling I with multi-cores? That, that confuses me amazingly. Like, uh, is, uh, well, the thing is, is that a CPU, even if you have uh, typically a CPU, which is one core, it can only do one thing at a time. Well... And unless you have hyper-threading, which is cheating... Well, it's every Intel chip ever since, like... 2004. Yeah, exactly. But I'm talking just generally... For someone like Cooper, who's mm -hmm. not going to understand the nuances of hyper-threading, where that is che it is cheating. It also sounds cool, hyper-threading. It's um, basically having a, turning one core into two cores. It's cheating, isn't it? You I only have one so. core, you can process one thing at a time. I don't even really know exactly how hyper-threading works. Uh... But it to. doesn't process two <laughs> things at a time. So uh, 10 years ago in Macintosh's dual processors were really popular. If you had a dual processor G4, then you could do two things at a time. But then, <clears throat> about 10 years ago, in the mid-2000s, uh, multi-core processors started appearing. And we hit a, a wall in terms of clock speed. If you notice, there's no real consumer 4 or 5 gigahertz machines. There's still um, kind of... Really? No. Yes. Really? Yes. Where? Any of the, the latest... You should top and line at Intel. You're going to see, like, the... So the one I have... Are they at four? That, well, that was about two, three years ago. So, it, okay, but we've had three gigahertz computers for 10 years. Yes, and I'd say and it's it still took, average. And it took, like... Right, and it took, like, a couple of years to jump from one to two gigahertz and a couple of years to That's jump it. from two to three gigahertz. I and should, then there has been a wall, and it was a heat wall. That's why there's no PowerBook G5. I should correct myself, too. It's been an average of three for anyone who doesn't have a Mac. Right. If you have a Mac, the average is two. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and 10 years ago, the clock speed on Macintoshes were pretty similar to how they are now. But the processors have evolved. So back in the 90s and the early 2000s, a lot of, there were the megahertz wars, if you remember those. And it was the megahertz wars between Intel and, pa and, and Motorola, who made the PowerPC processors for Macintosh. My uncle died in those. Yeah, that's a, it's really tragic. Um, but the megahertz wars were saying, well, you know, this Intel processor has 100 megahertz, but this Motorola PowerPC processor only has 66. Oh, that really can't do. But then you find out, if you had a PowerPC, that the Motorola at 66 megahertz could actually do more than the, power, than the Intel Pentium 1 at 100. So the number for megahertz, which is just clock cycles per second, uh, the amount of times that a, an a thing can cycle around a CPU in a given second, um, that doesn't really mean anything, but it's been the chief benchmark for computers, really, since they've become personal computers. And uh, that's become largely irrelevant in the last 10 years, as we've seen the proliferation of multiple cores. And this tangent is taking much longer to bring around than I'd originally intended. Um, so, we only have a few minutes left. 
Multiple cores allows concurrency, actual concurrency, because there's literally multiple processors, so each core can process one thing at a time. Why is this different? Uh, that, that's what confuses me, actually. This doesn't sound any, in any way, shape, or form the big. I mean, the article says that the biggest advantage in this is having concurrency because the operating system is processing multiple things at a time. Unless they mean Unless it's, sense. like, multiplexed. So yeah, all of the uh, programs are executed. The one, one instruction from every program is executed at the same time, so you don't know which program is actually being executed when, the pro so when it's running. It's interesting you bring up multiplex because that's the thing that everyone says Go is great at because that a great, uh, the, I should say uh, correct myself Go is great at concurrency because it multiplexes over threads. Uh, what it, what is a uh, thread in uh, Go, uh, Go is technically called a Go routine, and you can run many Go routines on a single thread. So if that's the case, then that's a that's actually a great improvement. Something that's kind of already been there, but they just moved how do you have the operating system routines? They're not they're not procedures. They're not functions. They're a thread. In Go, but that's not a thread on well, the it's system. A, it's a green thread, which m many languages have had green threads. Which what's are, a green thread? A green thread is not an actual operating system for thread. Like you, so, in C or C plus plus, when you deal or Java, and you deal with a thread, you're actually dealing with an operating system thread, which is a thread that the kernel is actually scheduling onto the uh, uh, processor itself. Which in that one, you, you basically have just uh, your, your number of cores times two on an Intel machine, and then uh, the is that hardware? Well, yes and no. It's a combination of the kernel itself and the uh, uh, the cores. So you can have way more than just your number of cores times two th threads. It's just that they'll end up actually eventually running out of memory because the kernel can only hold so much in its queue. Is that in the kernel queue, is that arbitrarily defined by the operating system or is that defined based on some hardware profiling that it does? Um, it is defined by the operating system in the sense that it's... Like it's actually... Like, is it an integer so, constant somewhere? No. Uh, what, what it is is... Um, and it can be switched out for other schedulers, but the default scheduler in the Linux kernel is called the completely fair scheduler. And what that is is a red-black tree, which, uh, for those that don't know, is a data structure that uh, has an, a certain algorithm to balance the tree such that it, it's never one side has uh, got way more things than the other. And it always just takes the leftmost uh, uh, task on there and schedules it onto the uh, processor based on the time that that task has been waiting divided by the amount of uh, process tasks in the queue. Well, that does sound fair. Yeah. Because, because they're all waiting around the same amount of time. In a perfect world. In a perfect world, right. Yeah. Well, life isn't fair, so that doesn't really happen. And that's why computers crash. Yes. Yeah. Well, somewhat. <laughs> okay, so to go back to this article... Uh, it was previous. It was previously believed I could do like my ABC News newsreader voice. But it was previously believed that having concurrency in a computer would be incredibly expensive and make it too complex for programs to be detected using traditional testing. That's a really good Tom Brokaw. Thank you. That's a, no. It's like Charlie Gibson or whatever on on ABC. However, the researchers managed to make it work by untangling all the independent components within the kernel. They then okay. They then reorganized the operating system's code into a large collection of hierarchical modules and wrote a mathematical specification for each kernel's module's intended behavior. How is this any different from Linux? Mathematical specification for each kernel module's intended behavior. Does that exist in Linux for each kernel module? You could argue unit tests. That's no. In fact, this are this this exactly. specific operating yeah. system. It it the whole difference is that it's actually using mathematical proofs instead of, of unit tests. tests. But then it's. The part that I, I got me thinking is a mathematical proof is essentially math's way of doing a unit test. They both say, for these values, uh, let, let it be this. And then but, the, the big difference is a mathematical proof will actually prove to a uh, tautology uh, 
that the logic is that if this, then and only then, this. Right, because math doesn't lie. Unit well, tests still can lie. Well, I'm sure there's mathematicians who could argue that yeah, that, we, that there's the math is just a theory. I mean, <laughs> I mean, have you ever seen a seven in the wild? I haven't. There's a I, yeah, it's a train. Oh, fair. Ah. <laughs> oh. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, all right. A program can be written 99% correctly. That's why today you don't see obvious issues, but a hacker can still speak, sneak into a particular setup where the program will not behave as expected. Yale professor of computer science and leader of the research, Zong Shao, said, The person who wrote the software worked with all good intentions but couldn't consider all cases. So the idea behind having a mathematical proof is that if it's math logic, it has to work for everything, and if the proof doesn't work out, then the program doesn't work out. But if it does, then they do. So it's an XOR, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, ten years ago, no one would predict that we could prove the correctness of a, thing, a single-threaded kernel, much less a multi-core one. That's pretty interesting. That's uh, It's a... It's a brave new world for operating systems. Do you think this is going to be a type, the type of thing that... Because it's just the kernel, right? It's the kernel and the task scheduler. Mm-hmm. So they could break that out and throw it into something like Ubuntu, can't they? Yeah, I don't think they will. Um, there's always the big uh, real world versus academia thing. That I think the only thing to ever come out of academia that was really widely accepted was the uh, building blocks of what was considered... Well, that is now considered Unix. Gotcha. So what's the biggest hurdle? We only have two minutes left. What's the biggest hurdle for this thing to jump to get into the mainstream? I think a big part of it would be showing uh, uh, that it can run at like a large-scale actual program that you'd see being uh, uh, in a professional data center. So you'd have to see like a real program being run. Yeah. And, and then that would actually work. Not, not like something like... How about like, so it would have to run Microsoft Word in Wine on Unix in order to get it to work, right? I, I don't know. Anyone would want to do that. Ever. Okay. Well... <laughs> Yeah, neither do I. But that brings us to the end of our very first episode. So, Christian, mm-hmm. do you approve this pull request? I do. Oh, wow. Well, then let's hit merge. Looks, looks good to me. And, and that's it. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Cooper. Thank you, Christian. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate everything. And we'll see you next week.